Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and it is currently the 8th day of April 2013 here in the sunny climes of Western Japan. So thank you once again for tuning in for this edition of the podcast, and this is another edition of the Questions for Corbett series, which I'm sure many of you know the drill by now, but for those who don't, I will spend the next half hour or so dipping into the mailbag of questions, comments, complaints, criticisms, and concerns that I've received over the past few weeks at CorbettReport.com, and we will be answering some of those questions out here in the open for for everyone to see. So, um, before we get into that, I should remind people the different ways that you can get questions into me for this ongoing series of video and audio podcasts. And there are basically three main ways. The first is through CorbettReport.com. Just click on the contact tab and you will be able to email me directly. Or you can uh, use my Twitter. You can just tweet me a question at Corbett Report. Or finally, you can use the YouTube comments of this video. Or you can, I will also leave the video response open to this video. So if you want to record yourself asking a question, I would be happy to play that on the next edition of this series as well. So let's uh, get right into it without further ado. And first up, we have a question in uh, through email from Robert. And Robert writes... After your interview with Kevin Carson yesterday, I took the time to read his book, The Homebrew Industrial Revolution, where he writes, quote, Even in high-tech, wealthy Japan, tiny businesses abound. Wander around a residential neighborhood, and you'll find a small stall fronting a house staffed by a retired person selling cigarettes, candy, and soft drinks. Maybe they only sell a few dollars worth of goods a day, but it's something. And in the meantime, the proprietor is reading a magazine or watching TV. End quote. That certainly seems a contrast to the American landscape, with its rigorous zoning and licensure laws. How true is it from your perspective? All right, thank you for the question, Robert. And I'll do better than just uh, answer your question. I will show you. So here we are on a typical street in my town here in, uh, in J- Western Japan. And you can see behind me, for example, the local mom and pop magazine store, or there's uh, some restaurants, just tiny little businesses that are, again, just owned by local ma and pa kind of operations and there's that basically all over around here uh, little uh, barber shops that open when they feel like it and things like this this is very much a part of the Japanese economy I have absolutely no idea the stats on this how big a part of the Japanese economy it is but it is here and this is something that uh, that is definitely part of the lifeblood of the Japanese economy it's one of the great things about the Japanese economy I think is that there's still that mom-and-pop kind of local feel to some of these stores. For example, we have a big electronics box store not too far from here, but you can still find tiny little electronics stores like this one. Again, just a little mom-and-pop store. You can order in anything you want, or you can go to the big box store and support the big corporations. So it's, uh, it's nice to have this alternative, which is not something that I had back in Canada very often. And uh, if you come over here, in fact, here is the, uh, the battery vending machine, which, again, you don't see a lot of those in Canada, so I find that funny. In fact, this is the area where my wife and I used to live before we moved to our new apartment, and it's not too far from the station. It's right in the heart of the city, but you still find these tiny little mom-and-pop businesses. Again, I have no idea what percentage of the Japanese economy this is, but it's, uh, it's sizable enough. I mean, it's, again, it provides some income for people over here. And it is one of the good things about this, uh, this economy, as I say, there's still that sense of a mom-and-pop local uh, small chain. So I think that's, that's something that's healthy about this, and it's part of the, uh, the, the, still the attachment that a lot of people have here to the, to the local economy and to supporting each other locally. There's still a lot of, uh, 
uh, buying local f foods and produce and things like that and shopping at little tiny stores like this still happens. So that's a good thing, although it is being gradually replaced by the big box stores. So anyway, I just thought I'd show you this and uh, let's go back to my uh, comfy apartment. All right, thank you again for that email, Robert. And let's move along to the next question. This one, a YouTube comment that was left by the Inkbat on our last Questions for Corbett series uh, video. And the Inkbat wrote, I have an interesting question. Have you heard of HARP causing the Japan earthquake in 2011? There is evidence by NASA that the ionosphere days prior to the event had been heating up rapidly. My question is if Obama can instantly in-state institute martial law during a natural disaster, could he potentially use HARP to cause a massive earthquake on the west coast of the United States, like so many mainstream news outlets have been predicting? End quote. All right, thank you for that, the ink bat. And to answer your question simply, yes, I certainly have heard about this, and in fact, I covered it in, in some degree of detail back in episode 179 of my podcast that was released just a couple of weeks after the earthquake itself called What Caused the 311 Earthquake? And we talked at some length there about the possibility of HARP and ionospheric heating. And in fact, we went into that in some greater depth later on uh, the next year, in March of 2012, when we talked to Dr. Nick Begich, who of course wrote Angels Don't Play This Harp. We talked to him extensively about HARP and earthquakes and uh, whether there's a connection and how that connection actually functions. So I would suggest people listen to that interview. And also in the show notes for that edition of Corbett Report Radio, I also linked up both an article about atmospheric heating uh, above Japan uh, before the M9 earthquake and also a scientific paper called Ionospheric Electron Enhancement Preceding the 2011 Tohoku Oki Earthquake. And as I noted, there is definitely appears to be some sort of connection between the ionospheric heating that takes place before certain large-scale earthquakes like what happened in Tohoku in 2011 and the earthquakes themselves. But uh, what that connection is and how it functions has not exactly been established yet. But it certainly is uh, something that is very fruitful for people to look into, so I will direct them to those resources. And I suppose the long story short, could Obama or whatever political puppet happens to be in power at the time, use a big event like that as a way of instituting a martial law type scenario. It is certainly possible. I, I think it is certainly possible. But uh, is it likely? Well, again, that, that really does depend. There are lots of different scenarios for what a false flag scenario might look like and how and why it might be used at a given time. And again, I'm not in the uh, business of uh, predicting uh, events or looking into a crystal ball or uh, gazing at tea leaves. So I will leave that to, uh, to fortune tellers to try to swindle the public with. All I can say is that that is a possibility and it is something that people should at least be aware of. So again, I'll direct them back to those resources that I just mentioned and that will be linked up in the show notes for this edition of Questions for Corbett. Uh, moving along to the next email that we got in from Ron, he writes... Can you please share a dedicated IP address to ensure we can direct our browsers? In this age of DNS server attacks, this would be helpful for the viewers and listeners. Well, Ron, excellent question. That's actually very important, and I hope uh, people understand why that's important. But for those who don't, I will link up an article from RT from last year uh, talking about this very phenomenon of the U.S. government, which has gone on a domain name uh, seizing spree of late. And they have an article up called Official U.S. Government Already Seized Hundreds of Foreign Domains. And it just starts by saying, quote, U.S. seizure of a Canadian gambling website caused online outcry as it was registered abroad and thought to be outside American jurisdiction. But this is far from isolated. It has emerged that the U.S. has seized hundreds of foreign, webs uh, foreign domain names. 
So for again, for those people who don't really know what this is about, uh, what this means is that the uh, the US government isn't actually seizing the website itself. It isn't actually seizing the servers, or at least not in these cases, not actually seizing the servers that the website is hosted on. What they are doing is they're taking the domain name registry and they are uh, they are basically delinking that from the, the the website itself. So when you type in, for example, CorbettReport.com uh, and put that into your browser, your browser goes to the domain uh, registry and it reads and it finds out the address for that that website. And the website, the address is a string of numbers that really wouldn't um, be very easy to remember or interesting for most people. So this is the system that we have. And basically, simply by taking out that linkage in the domain registry, they can break the website so that people can't get to it by, for example, putting in CorbettReport.com. But if you have the direct IP address of that server, you can get directly to that website, even if they do seize the domain name. So uh, I have mentioned this on the program before. I believe I mentioned it in a previous episode of Corbett Report Radio. But again, let's put that on uh, on record here. So it, just in case, if it ever does happen that CorbettReport.com or any of my websites get seized, you will know where to go. And so in order to do that, why don't we go on the desktop to see exactly how that's done? All right, for those of you watching this video online, you'll see that we are on MediaMonarchy.com right now, because why not? And let's just go up to the address bar. And of course, if we just type in uh, CorbettReport.com, you will you will receive my homepage. But let's let's see if you don't aren't able to access through CorbettReport.com, you can type in the magical numbers 77.235.49.11 slash tilde, uh, there it is, Corbett2. And when you do that, you will get the Corbett Report uh, 404 page not found error page. Now, <laughs> myself not being the most savvy uh, server setup guy, uh, I don't know how to actually get to the homepage of the website through this access system, but here is the website at, at any rate. You can access it through the uh, 77.235.49.11 tilde corbett2 if you are ever unable to access the website directly, and hopefully from there you'll be able to find... Uh, well, at least, uh, for example, the archives from April 2013 or the homepage or the podcast tab or whatever it is. So those that's the, the main way to access the website um, in the event of some sort of catastrophic taking down of the domain name. Uh, bookmark that. Uh, keep it in your notes just in case, because once again, you never know in this age of uh, DNS and domain name seizures. Thank you again for the question, Ron. Let's move on to the next email. This one from Bernard, who writes, Please, could you translate in French for the French militant? I don't speak English and il difficulté for me. Well, uh, uh, merci pour votre email, Bernard, uh, mais malheureusement, je ne peux pas parler français. Uh, unfortunately, I can barely speak English some days, let alone Japanese, let alone the, uh, the few years of French that I studied back in school. So, unfortunately, the, uh, the translation department, I leave up to anyone, any kind souls out there that are willing and or able to help out translating whatever works uh, of the Corbett Report they find useful and informative. And on that note, there have been uh, translations that have been done before, uh, quite a few into Spanish and some into French and some other languages besides. Probably the most notable one is the 9-11 A Conspiracy Theory viral video, which has been translated into numerous languages now, and all of those are linked up at the, uh, the top of the post for that video on CorbettReport.com. 
But again, it's really just a question of if any kind souls out there are willing to donate their time to make a translation of any particular video or podcast or whatever it is, I would be happy to host it on my server or link to it at any rate if they put it up on YouTube or whatever they uh, they seem t- they want to do with that. But again, I don't have the time, energy, or ability to uh, to put that together for myself. So. Once again, if you do have uh, the the ability to do that, that is one way you can certainly help to contribute and spread the word about this information, and it is greatly appreciated. Uh, And so let's move right along to the next email from Graham, who wrote, You've mentioned several times about the near mathematical certainty of a large global financial crash. Please can you expand upon that and your reasoning that leads to that conclusion? Thank you for the question. Very, very good question. It is important that people understand why it is that the debt that is being racked up in the people's name, uh, which of course is fraudulent in and of itself, but this debt that's supposedly being racked up in our names is itself mathematically impossible to extinguish at this point. And it is important to understand that because it is tied directly into the nature of the creation of money in our, in our monetary system. And, uh, and when we start to understand that, we start to really appreciate just how fundamental the fraud that's going on is. And rather than attempting to articulate that myself, why don't I leave it, leave it to uh, someone who has done an excellent job of articulating that? And that is uh, Paul Grignon, a previous guest here on this podcast, and of course, the creator of the Money as Debt video series. As we have seen, nowadays virtually every dollar comes into existence as debt, with a scheduled appointment to be extinguished as a principal payment on the loan that created it. Thus, for all borrowers to be able to make their payments of principal plus interest, two things must be true. The dollar created as the principal of the loan must be available to be earned by the borrower in order to make the principal payment that extinguishes that dollar. and. Every dollar the borrower pays to the bank as interest must also be available to be repeatedly earned by the borrower so that it can be paid as interest again and again. There is a common theory, undoubtedly popular with lenders, that because the banks spend their interest earnings as operating expenses, interest to depositors and shareholders' dividends, there is in fact enough money released back into the community to make all payments. However, like the idea of absolute shortage, this is an oversimplification. Picture what happens if someone else, such as you or I or an institutional non-bank lender, obtains this dollar and then lends it out at interest. Well, now that same dollar is simultaneously owed to two lenders and has two simultaneous interest charges attached to it. In addition, if this dollar is loaned, repaid, and reloaned by the secondary lender, it is not available to pay off the principal of the loan that created it, except as another loan. So, can we borrow from Peter to pay Paul and borrow from Paul to pay Peter? This gets interesting. We can. However, each time money is borrowed, there's an interest charge added that also must be paid. If all added interest charges can be earned, all payments can be made. On this basis, many economists and defenders of the current system claim there can never be a shortage of money and all payments can be made. But this seems to be a false assurance. For instance, if secondary lenders capture some of the money needed to retire the loan that created that money, the original loan can never be retired. 
the deficiency will have to be borrowed over and over forever each time at interest. Each deficiency will be cumulative, adding to an ever-building total of debt that can never be paid off. Thank you again for that question, Green, which leads quite naturally into our next question, which is one that's been expressed lots of different ways by various different people who have written in. But let's take this particular formulation from Naomi, who writes, Just interested in how your lifestyle is with the, ec with the economy worries. We were thinking about moving into a new home. Our small home is currently paid off. Do you live for today or plan for a future of some sort? Uh, end quote. All right. Well, thank you for the question, Naomi. Uh, well, f I certainly plan for the future. Uh, there is going to be a future, and I plan on myself and my family being part of it. So absolutely, I think it would be the utmost irresponsibility to go around just living as if there will be no tomorrow. But of course, the question then becomes, well, how do you prepare for a very, very uncertain tomorrow in a very, very uncertain economic and financial and uh, geopolitical climate? And that is not an easy question to answer by any means. And let me start by saying, of course, that I am not qualified in any of the uh, traditional ways to be an investment advisor or anything of the sort. So please uh, take everything that I say uh, with regards to this with a hefty grain of salt and with your own uh particular interests and tastes in mind. But for, for myself and for my family, I uh, certainly think that, that the precious metals investment strategy is uh, one of the most time-tested and true models for how to preserve wealth and how to hedge against the type of economic collapse that, again, as we've seen, is kind of baked into the pie with our current monetary order. So, uh, but in order to flesh that out a little bit more, I will direct your attention to an excellent article that went up on Zero Hedge the other day called Protecting Yourself from Japanese Insanity, which lays out, I think, quite well the, uh, the QE insanity that is taking place right now, of course, not just with the Bank of Japan, but the Federal Reserve and what's happening in Europe and all elsewhere around the globe, as we've talked about many times here on the program and in various different interviews that I've done in the past several months. But uh, not only does it lay it out why this is insanity and uh, what exactly it means for the markets, but it also starts to talk about the various uh, ways that the economic collapse that we do see coming can take place. And it lays out at least four different uh, types of economic collapses that can take place. And it's important for people to understand that there are different models for collapse, because I think people tend to think of collapse as an all at once, everything hits zero, uh, uh, the hyperinflation sits, kicks in, and people are carrying wheelbarrows full of money. That is not the only way that a collapse could happen, and it's not even necessarily the most likely form of collapse uh, that, that can happen. So I would suggest people read through this and take a look at the different collapse models, and note that there are different asset classes that basically overperform in each of those different models. And you have, broadly speaking, at least as delineated in this particular article, four main asset classes, which would be bonds, stocks, uh, precious metals, and uh, cash in various forms of currency. And uh, I would expand some of those categories. Uh, we could talk about equities instead of stocks. We can talk about uh, uh, commodities instead of precious metals. But roughly, you have those four asset classes. And it's talking about which ones will out, uh, overperform in which economic collapse model. And uh, then it talks about the Harry ba Brown investment strategy, who was a uh, 1970s author who t predicted the 1970s uh, slump. 
that was overseen by uh, Jimmy Carter and the, and the gang of the trilateralists in the late 1970s there. And he talked about investment strategies for that coming slump and uh, basically a fail-safe investing strategy, which inv- involved uh, certain percentages for those different four classes. I, again, I'll let you read through that and decide for yourself uh, what particularly what suits your investment needs the best. But uh, for myself, I am certainly thinking about the future, and I am thinking about investing for that future, especially now that my wife and I have a baby on the way. Uh, it uh, certainly hits home uh, just a little bit harder when you start thinking about the future, when you know that uh, your next of kin is going to be relying on you to help uh, get uh, the family through whatever might be coming down the pike financially. So something we all have to be thinking about, and uh, again, I hope people will be tuning into my weekly conversations with Dr. Stan Monteith on Radio Liberty and or subscribing to my newsletter where uh, I go into these types of issues in greater length and greater detail. And um, let's move along to the next question. We have one in from Joyce who writes, I'm riding around with a bumper sticker that says, Government loves me, this I know, for the TV tells me so. But I want a Corbett Report bumper sticker to show people where they can go for news. Well, thank you for that vote of support, Joyce. And uh, this is a question that I've had in from several different people over the years. People have been asking for Corbett Report bumper stickers and or t-shirts or that type of merchandise. And I have always shied away from that and continue to do so because I don't particularly want to make this a... uh, a merchandising type of operation. I don't think that that suits exactly what I'm doing, and I don't think that's the image I'm going for, and I don't think that's what best serves the information. But at the same time, I do understand that it is an effective way to talk about the website and to, sh- to show uh, what where the website is, to introduce other people to the website, to find other people who like the website. I do understand the social utility of something like that, so I'm certainly not against other people out there taking it upon themselves to, do, to step up to the plate and create those types of bumper stuff stickers or t-shirts, and uh, you're free to use the Corbett Report logo or whatever it is, Uh, but of course with the caveat that I have nothing to do with anything with the Corbett Report logo out there except what you find directly from my website. That is the only thing that I officially put my stamp and seal on. So, Uh, But uh, on that note, I recently had a a chat with one of the Corbett Report listeners who has taken it upon himself to start making Corbett Report t-shirts. And uh, I have some video from that conversation, so why don't we watch a little bit of that? Well, let's let's talk about yourself personally. So, where where did this idea come from? How did you get into this, and and why? Well, I my history is in IT. I'm a software engineer, been doing that for 27 years, and just recently I was laid off. Uh, I didn't fit into the current paradigm apparently as a remote worker. So I, I've been doing that for eight years, and I saw that coming. So I've been building things in the background uh, as, as potential uh, sources of income, and doing T-shirts has always been a passion of mine. So I thought, you know, it'd be fun to do some T-shirts for the alternative media. And, um, you know, someone <laughs> knocked, tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, guess what, the your passion is going to become your your main source of income. I guess so. Well, that's funny how that works sometimes. But uh, for people who are only listening to the audio of this interview, they will not be able to see the the designs that you have behind you there in the video. And they will not be able to see either what I'm holding here in my hand, the complimentary copy of the Corbett Report t-shirt. That I, uh, that I got from yourself, which unfortunately is a little bit too large for me. So just as a warning for people out there who might order one of these, the large really are quite large. But, uh, 
but I do appreciate this. This is, I think, a great idea, and I think that you've got some some interesting designs there. Tell us about some of the other designs that you have up there. Uh, some of the other designs I have, I've just been experimenting at this point. I've got a BPA-free, uh, calling attention to BPA, and then, um, oh, I, I n- nothing specific in in alternative media that I have up yet, but uh, one of my favorites that I put out there, one of my first ones is, if you work for a living, why do you kill yourself working? Once again, that's Chris Andrews of RedHotInkers.com and the full interview with him, the audio interview can be found on CorbettReport.com right now and you can go to RedHotInkers.com to buy a Corbett Report t-shirt and he is donating a portion of every Corbett Report t-shirt to the Corbett Report. But uh, I, again, I have nothing to do with it uh, directly, and uh, it's certainly up to people out there if they want to uh, to start spreading the word about the website in that way or any other way. All the help is certainly appreciated. Now let's move on to an, another very important question, an interesting question that I've received many, many, many times in many different forms from many different people in many different ways. But let's take this particular question from WS, who writes, As the call for citizen journalists arises... How do you do your work without fear or of harassment from the outside and establishment? Many have been killed in all areas who spoke the truth. Why are you still alive? End quote. All right, thank you for the question, WS. And for everyone else who has written in variations of this question over the years, I certainly do appreciate the question, and obviously so for someone who has a podcast that has a regular Requiem for the Suicided feature where we've talked about people like... Gary Webb and Danny Casolaro and the DC Madam and David Kelly and many, many others who certainly have uh, been killed for what they knew, for knowing too much, basically. So it is a serious question. It is an important question. And it is one of the reasons why I have stressed repeatedly and stressed uh, over and over again here on the website that I have no plan to ever kill myself, that I love my life and I love my family and I have no plans on leaving this world anytime soon. So I do always stress that because this is serious stuff that really does happen in the real world. But it is also important to note that, for example, people like Gary Webb and uh, Danny Casolaro and David Kelly and people like that all had extremely important information, which was not being, which was at least being partially withheld from the public, or they weren't spilling all the beans, or there were things that they they had up their sleeve that they could be releasing, or were books they were working on, etc., at the time that they were killed. And I have uh, every reason to believe that was very much contributory to the part, uh, to the point of their murders. So I think it is important for people to understand that uh, that a lot of those types of incidents happen when there are people with that type of insider information who have let it be known that they have insider information but are not spilling those beans. That is, of course, a prime uh, target for these types of operations. And I think that's the type of time when someone would have to be very concerned. What I do is completely 100% open. It's open source investigative journalism, but it uh, I don't have any secret inside sources that I don't have uh, out here in the open. So uh, everything that I have 
all the information I have, I put out into the podcast and there's nothing held back. So there would be really no reason from that strategic objective to try to silence me or cover me up. Because again, I'm just putting the information out there that is already out there in the public domain. And, uh, and it's also important, I think, for people to get out of the mindset that this is some sort of necessarily some sort of 007 secret agent world where every time you do anything online, you're about to be killed by shadowy secret agents of the New World Order. I think that, that when we get into that mentality, it really does start bordering less on prudence and anxiety and more on outright paranoia. And uh, it is something that we continue to have to go back to time and time and time again is that we build the enemy up in our own minds to the point where sometimes we it can be portrayed as this overarching 100% totally controlling system which controls everyone and everything in this entire planet and nothing can happen without uh, without it being directly a, a result or a responsibility of the new world order or something along those lines. And I'm here to tell you that I do not subscribe to that philosophy. I think that to a large extent, that is what they would love us to believe. They love it when we start to make them into these types of almost godlike figures that can do anything and wield any amount of power. I still believe that the power ultimately rests in our hands, that each and every one of us out there can resist and can fruitfully resist each and every day in each and everything that we do. Every, everything we buy, everyone we interact with, everything we do, we control ultimately at the end of the day. And uh, the only way they could try to shut us down is to kill everyone, and that's not going to happen. The, uh, the freedom and liberty will live on because the idea is unstoppable. And it's only when we start giving into that idea that it is an overarching system that's going to kill anyone who speaks out or even writes an email or posts on Facebook or whatever it is, uh, that this is going to suddenly, there, there's going to be a, a trap sprung for you. I think when we get out of that mindset and, again, realize that it is the fear that controls us, that we will, uh, it's only once we over overcome that mindset that we will be able to begin any sort of real revolution of the mind, the only revolution that really matters. So on that exact note, uh, we had a question in from Roseanne who writes, if the New World Order is so smart, so powerful, so wealthy, why haven't they come close to succeeding? Well, I think we could argue over what coming close to succeeding means and what exactly they are succeeding or are not succeeding on, but I think we can agree that this is not the ultimate end goal of the globalists and those in charge. I think that they certainly do have several major hurdles to climb or could cross or jump over before we get to the type of overarching global system that they're attempting to bring in. And certainly I think that uh, it seems that they certainly are very, very far behind in their plans that that they have, should have, on their timeline, have have this implemented uh, probably at the turn of the millennium back in 2000, capping the uh, pyramid and uh, and bringing in the global control control grid. Uh, but that didn't happen, and it hasn't happened yet, and there continues to be major resistance from all around the globe, and there are still th victories that are being won each and every day by free, like-minded individuals who are coming together spontaneously, self-organizing in voluntary ways to try to uh, to affect change on their local level and in the greater world around them by setting an example for others. That is our victory, and that is why the New World Order is not all-powerful, not all-knowing, or not all-seeing. It is not a godlike figure that can do anything it wants. It is certainly something that is being built up in the minds of its enemies, 
more so than I think is warranted. And, and until we really take that to heart and really start uh, speaking out, each and every one of us speaking out and just resisting in each and every way, in each and every day, whatever form of resistance you think that is, uh, I'm 100% behind it. Just go out and resist and do not fall for the, uh, the, the, the traps that we fall into of thinking that this is some sort of system that controls everything, everywhere, at all times. All right, on that note, we're going to wrap it up. It's been about half an hour. So uh, once again, I thank you all for all those questions, and please keep them coming in. Once again, you can email, you can tweet, you can leave YouTube comments, and you can post a video response to this YouTube video. And all of the notes for today's episode, again, will be posted in the links uh, at CorbettReport.com. So once again, thank you for your time and attention. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com, signing off, and looking forward to talking to you again real soon.